0: Thank you so much for tuning in to let's talk the official podcast of the national runaway safeline or nrs at nrs we operate the federally designated national communication system for youth who have run away are experiencing homelessness or who may be considering leaving home for over 50 years we provided crisis support and resources for young people families and communities across the nation today i am thrilled to welcome two former guests back to the podcast All the way from season one of Let's Talk, we have Rachel Lichman and EJ Velez, who are both members of the National Runway Lines Youth Advisory Board, among many, many other youth-led groups. I've been a huge fan of you both and the incredible work that you do for a couple of years now, and getting to listen to you both in person has informed so much of the work that I do. So I thank you so much for taking the time to come back and give us an update on this conversation about accessing health care while experiencing homelessness. Why don't we start with introductions just for the people who may not have heard the episode. Uh, Rachel, would you mind going first?
1: Hi, my name is Rachel, Uh, I use she, her pronouns. I consider myself a youth advocate, also a disability advocate and a cartoonist. I draw comics and I also write some articles. As for my disabilities, I have a genetic condition. It's called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's a connective tissue disorder and that causes a lot of other issues in other body systems. So I also have a neurological disorder called POTS as a result of that. Um, And then I deal with some mental health conditions. Um, I was diagnosed with a lot of different mental health conditions when I was growing up, but really just all boils down to trauma. So I have PTSD.
2: Good morning, I'm EJ. And for me, I would say my title is I am a youth advocate. I focus mainly in the policy realm, focusing on housing justice, juvenile justice, as well as disability awareness, because that tends to be missed when focusing on housing as well as juvenile justice. When it comes to my disability, I am blind. It is very visible. Once you see that cane, you kind of assume. I guess most people don't assume, but you know, good thing. Assumptions are being flawed out. When it comes to chronic conditions, I do have... Um, carpal tunnel which some people might see as a limited that it's not really that chronic but clapping can actually cause me pains or gripping things not really one of my things but learning how to manage that I also have some emotional disabilities which includes PTSD as well as a fluctuation of anxiety because I'm blind and blind anxiety is a very real thing in my community for some
0: For the listeners who are new to the podcast or may have missed your original episodes would you mind providing a little context for our conversation today and share just a little bit about your experiences with homelessness whatever you feel comfortable sharing in the moment
1: i did not grow up in a very safe or loving household and so i was just struggling a lot growing up i ran away for the first time when i was 13 but it was less than 24 hours so it wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, I didn't end up homeless at that point, but there was just a lot going on that year. So that was the first time I ended up running away. I ran away for good without ever coming back. When I was 18 years old, there was a DCFS report and I ended up making a police report about some abuse. And I was just very scared to go back home after I made those disclosures. So I ended up running away um, and I became homeless that summer. I ended up in a youth shelter, and um, then after that stay there, I went to college.
2: My homeless experience was very fluctuant as a child. It was moving around a lot with my family, but the main kicker was when I was 17, I was abandoned by my family in August and November. Before Thanksgiving, my mom tried to put me in a mental hospital Once she couldn't do that. She left me at a women's shelter for domestic abuse, since that couldn't stick because they wouldn't keep me soon after. I woke up after 72 hours with the house packed up and everything gone. So I had to figure out from there what I was going to do. My life was anything but perfect. Yes, there was neglect and abuse. Everything was reported by CYS. We constantly had case workers in and out of our lives. I had reports made consistently, but nothing was ever done. The school did acknowledge that in November of 2018, I became a homeless youth because I had no legal parent and or guardian and the school district also acknowledged that CYS at that point in time did not contact BCIU was the ones who stepped in to try to support me but during that time, I did not go to a shelter. I had actually waited until I was 18 before I got my first police signed My Family Promise in my county. But during the time from when I was homeless, I kind of just don't really share where I was because it's a part of my history that I am not very proud of.
0: That's totally fair. And I really appreciate everything that both of you are shared so far. And I'd, I'd like to start our conversation off, actually, with a little guidance from you both. I noticed while I was doing just a little bit of research on the topic today that some people really go out of their way to avoid using the word disability. So I just want to make sure that it's a word that everyone feels comfortable with using today. <laughs> I feel kind of ignorant asking, please but... say
1: the word disabled, please say disability. Um, there's I think sometimes a lot of fear around saying that word because people think it's this like bad terrible thing uh recently there's been like this turn to using the word differently abled it is considered very offensive by people in the disability community because it's a euphemism it's like it's very infantilizing i'm not differently abled i'm disabled and it also just sort of like glosses over the reality that yeah our bodies are different i i I mean, I do have disabilities. I'm not differently abled. So yes, please use the word disabled. It is something that I think if you you can't name disability, then you can't really address ableism.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for clarifying. I really appreciate it. I think that because it's a medical term, I think people try to avoid using that if they're not like a health professional.
1: Yes, it is a medical term, but it's also been adopted by like the disability community, disability activists. So it's like, you know... It's been around for a while. I agree
2: with Rachel 100%. Disabled is not a bad word. Everyone has different disabilities, and saying differently abled is in every way a disrespect. It is a slap to the face, and we need to remove that from our vocabulary in every direction because disabled just means that a person does things differently. Saying differently abled is basically you trying to recreate a word that already exists i'm disabled i'm proud to be disabled it's like you saying i'm blind but i'm not actually blind i just have low vision and need to eat more carrots or take vitamin a that's not what i have to do i am just a blind person who needs a cane and i don't need glasses because that's not going to help but disabled is not a bad word it's a word that i truly love to say and you should not be scared to say it just don't ask a person what their disability is because that is, in some ways, disrespectful to individuals. Some might have no problem with it, but you truly never know. So just don't ask. Keep pushing, and mind your own business. <laughs> is there
0: is there an appropriate way for someone to start a conversation or a dialogue with you about disabilities, or do you generally feel that like it's not something that people should ask you about? Do you generally hit them with a like? I don't see how that's any of your business.
1: I do think there are circumstances where it's okay to ask someone about your disability. I think especially if, like, you know, your friends, you've known each other for a while, you've already built a relationship. It's really weird, though, when you're just, like, going about your day-to-day life and maybe someone recognizes something they think is wrong and then they're like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's, that's the worst one? It's like, what's wrong with you? I've gotten that a couple times because I have, uh, with my my connective tissue disorders, sometimes I have to wear braces and stuff. And so people will be like, what's wrong with you? What happened to you? That's that's just not okay. Especially if it's just a stranger, just... So I think relationships do matter in that maybe if you've like known someone or you're having a conversation around disability, I think it's more appropriate when it's like clearly the subject of the conversation, but just sort of like out of the blue, what's your disability? What's wrong with you? What's going on? That That can just be really weird because it's not really something that like I'm I'm thinking about all the time, even though it is a part of my identity. It's not just like, I don't know. So it just feels very weird for someone to just bring that up out of the blue when it's not even related to the conversation that you're having.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's a little weird, yeah. Um, I also want to ask earlier, EJ, I heard you mention invisible disabilities. And Rachel, I think you were actually just talking about invisible disabilities. Can you give me your own definition of what an invisible disability is?
2: I have an invisible disability that many people might not see, which is that I have some emotional disorders that I don't always express, but a person might see my anxiety not always showing. So I just stay to myself and do my own thing, and a person might just think, oh, the person's just shut off. They're just rude. They have wrestling bitch face, pardon my French. But in that case, you truly don't know if they have anxiety or not. Or if a person has carpal tunnel, you can't see it just by looking at somebody's hands. You don't know what's happening with somebody's nerves. If somebody's in pain, they're not always going to show it because those migraines are not something that's going to reflect on the outside. It's something that somebody's learned to suppress those pains until it gets too bad to where they have to step out. And yet they look rude in those moments in time because everybody's expecting them to always be perfect. Those visible disabilities or something that you're able to see, like my cane or my eyeball, which I truly love because now it looks cool. But the invisible ones are the ones that truly hurt the most because those are the ones you have to consistently prove when you go to the doctor's office or ask for an accommodation or truly push for something to be done for you, which sucks. But it's like, there are so many invisible disabilities that people don't acknowledge. Without my cane, nobody would believe I was blind. And with my cane, some people still don't believe I'm blind. So they test it, and then they realize they're going to get hit with a cane. Not on purpose sometimes. But it just truly is one of those things that we have to realize those visible and invisible disabilities are still disabilities that we have to respect. Again, I'm one of those people, you can ask me about my disability, I don't care. It's not my personality, but my blindness is kind of a little bit of a personality because I wear it on my sleeve. I make my jokes on it, you'll never see it coming. But it's just, it just (laughs) depends on the person.
0: I I love that about you, EJ. Is it a regular occurrence for people to ask you personal questions about your health, either one of you? Uh, Rachel, you mentioned it earlier. um, And when you said it, I could totally hear and visualize some members of my own family being like, what's wrong with you? Or do you ever have people accuse you of just like not being honest about what's going on with your health?
1: Yes. I mean, for me, I think the, the faking comes, I think, from the fact that especially a lot of my, the people believing that I'm faking comes from the fact that my disabilities, along with most disabilities, to be honest, are very dynamic. So some days I might be so exhausted I can't get out of bed. There's other days where I can walk. And so people are like, how can your disability be real if, you know, like you said that you it, you can't get out of bed, but now you're walking. So people just like there is like sometimes this very like cut and dry idea of disability as something that's like consistent all the time. So like when people think of wheelchair users, it's usually oh your legs don't work at all, and that's why a lot of times they'll say like if somebody is able to walk and get out of a wheelchair, which is most people who use wheelchairs, they're like oh you're faking. And so I do get a lot of that. Um, not really within my community because I have friends with a lot of disabled people. I think that's just what happens. (laughs) Um, But I think outside of my communities, people don't really understand it. They're like, they're like, Oh, are you better now? Like, that's something I've gotten a lot, you know, like when I was out of school for a while. um, And then I came back, they're like, are you better now? I'm like, No, I have a chronic illness, just because I'm here now. And not in the hospital doesn't mean I'm like, I mean, yeah, I'm not in a health crisis, but I'm not my chronic illness is not going to go away. It's that's what a chronic illness is. It's always there. So I do get like the, are you better now? Um, I hope you get better. <laughs> Not going to happen. Um, and then, especially in the doctor's office, I think that's where I often faced honestly some of the most like disbelief sometimes. Cause there's just a lot of medical providers that don't always understand my conditions very well. So I have some medical providers that are really great, but then some that are like, Oh, um, you know, like, you seem fine, because I don't, there's just, there's, like, some misunderstanding, especially being a woman entering the medical system. There's just the, like, added sexism of, well, you look like a young woman, so healthy woman, because a lot of my disabilities aren't visible, so they'll just be like, maybe, maybe you're fine, just based off of how I look,
0: Mm, (laughs) which
1: is not how it works, but yeah.
0: I hate that so much, especially knowing how kind and honest and giving both of you are and i've had the opportunity to hear you both speak about different things you've experienced in your life and ej you've actually spoken before about healthcare professionals saying that you're not telling the truth do you have anything to add to what rachel said
2: i've dealt with in the healthcare system and in real life and service providers most recently last week i actually walked into an lgbt center and one of the staff said oh i didn't realize blind people can be mobile i, I I don't know what that means, to be honest, but um that was that was eye-opening. But I explained, yeah, I'm in college. I'm doing what I got to do. I'm just living life. When it comes to the healthcare system and I walk in there as a blind person by myself, they always look confused. But I remember I walked in there one day and somebody followed right behind me and sat down and the doctor came out and the doctor looked at me, looked at the other person and started telling my medical information to the other person and the lady looked like I'm not with them, but when it comes to the blind person who's visibly disabled, sometimes they just dismiss me. I can be in chronic pain, screaming and crying, and they'll look at me like, I just want drugs or I just want this, or I just want that, thinking that I'm being hysterical. Like, no, I just had my uterus pulled out from down below. Like I'm going to be in pain, but the doctors tend to just dismiss it. Whenever I bring up something and then they look at my eyes and they look at me and they try to give me a vision test, they say, oh, you need a specific note done. And you can't get your physical pass until you have this specific note done. I went to a different provider, got my physical done, and then continued to work because they wouldn't pass me because I was blind for a physical for my job, a job that I had been working for over a year. But anytime I walk into a healthcare provider's office, I've learned there are certain challenges that I have to fight because there's always going to be an obstacle. There's always going to be that person that's going to say, oh, wait, you're mobile? Oh, hmm, blind person, vision test, no vision test, can't pass, You you, you need to go somewhere else to get your physical. But it's just funny because a lot of people don't realize that some blind people can see and some blind people can't, which sounds like a contradiction, but blindness is a full spectrum. The legal definition of blind is just that. It's just blind. It's just... There is no real differentiation between low vision, legally blind, and blind. They just use that specific word to categorize a whole group of individuals. But doctors tend to dismiss me consistently.
0: Do you find that people tend to compare things that they've experienced, which are not disabilities, with what you're experiencing?
1: Okay, I think for me, the biggest comparison is always things that are temporary so like a lot of times it's like oh i first with fatigue fatigue when you're chronically ill is this whole separate awful thing that you it's just it's not even in the like non-chronic illness or like vocabulary language but it gets used you know very offhand by other people who are not chronically ill and they're like when they're tired, they'll be like, oh, I'm fatigued. And they're like, oh, I didn't sleep last night. So I think I understand your fatigue.
0: It's it's not, I need I a nap every day. <laughs> Chronic
1: illness fatigue is not just like not <laughs> sleeping a night. It is like, it just, it's so different. It wipes you out. It wipes your brain out. Like there's no, there's no really comparison. Um, if you're not, if you haven't felt that before. I also so get like compared a lot to like having the flu. People are like, oh, I had the flu. So I understand like what it's like. I'm like, yeah, the flu really sucks, but like-
0: Imagine having the flu imagine and having the chronic fatigue. every yeah. single day.
1: <laughs> like like <laughs> there's also just like this like complete, like p- people don't think of chronic illness as disabling as it is sometimes because like their idea of illness is very temporary. And so they don't really understand what it's like when it's prolonged like that. Um, so yeah, the flu is a really common one, not sleeping. Um, or sometimes it's just like having some kind of injury for a little bit, like, cause I have a, I get a lot of injuries because of my connective tissue disease. So like, oh yeah, I like broke my, my leg one time or like, I mean, yeah, that that is definitely an experience and you do get to, you know, see what it's like to have a disability for a little bit, but it's like, this is, again, it's chronic. And so it's not just like, oh, it was that one time where I wasn't, you know, well, it's like, this is how it is all the time. And so I think that makes it really hard for people to understand kind of the depth of what it's like to have a disability, because like their idea of it is like, oh, it was just this like temporary thing that Mm -hmm. happened once in my life.
0: Uh, I hate 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 that you had to experience that because it seems so annoying I don't know why people strive to be like the most depressed a person in the room but I digress um while you were experiencing homelessness what was it like trying to access health care <laughs> EJ, based on that face you made we might need a whole new episode to talk about that
2: <laughs> I mean for like I, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna be hundred percent honest and this is gonna be the worst thing I can say. Okay, yes, I had my medical assistance because I'm disabled. I was given the full disabled diagnosis as of this year. So excited. Hardest thing to ever get, but I learned the loopholes to get it. Woohoo. But I had like medical assistance when I became homeless. I learned the loopholes to get that. But I didn't start going to actual health care providers until 2021. So I neglected my health from 2018 until 2021 because to get into a provider's office, the moment I step in to either an eye doctor, the doctor had such a bad stigma on me for an ophthalmologist specialist because of my mother. And now that I'm a homeless youth walking in there by myself, he didn't want anything to do with me. Walking into a primary care doctor, they didn't want nothing to do with me. Walking into multiple places by myself, they couldn't have anything. I was hit by a car and I had to get an MRI done. And you have to be 21 to get the MRI done. Since when do you have to be 21 or you have to have a parent? I was 18. What do you mean I need a parent? So it's like the healthcare system, I just kind of like gave up on until like last year. I said 2021. Last year was 2022. Poof, my brain is off. But it's like I really neglected my health for the longest until last year. And then I started like full course picking it up. Doing my therapy, getting my stuff in order, and just truly committing to my health. But trying to access so many doctors while navigating that field, it was a nightmare. I had to truly find providers who would have accepted the fact that my blind ass is going to walk in there without a parent or a guardian. And I feel like the only reason they accepted it is because I was 21. But when I was 18 and 19, they turned their heads and just looked the other direction because you need to have a mom, you need to have a dad.
1: Yeah, so so a couple of things. So like, like EJ, I really just struggled to get access to healthcare when I was homeless because I didn't know my insurance status under my parents. And so that meant I, was, I didn't know if I was eligible for benefits. And so I just didn't enroll in any kind of insurance for a very long time. Um, and I did not have access to healthcare because of that. Um, when I did finally enroll in Medicaid, my I got that and then less than like two months into having that I um, I was in college that was over the summer so I got I got um, I was in college again that next semester and I got a scholarship from the Disability Resource Center and it was like this amazing thing where I would have extra money um, that would get refunded to me to pay my bills and the state counted that as income and so I got booted off my Medicaid pretty much the moment that I became a student again. Um, that led me to get into another health crisis. I had to drop most of my classes, and I almost dropped out of school. So there is this like very unfortunate interplay between the like financial aid and state benefits. It's like if you get good financial aid, which most youth are experiencing homelessness or housing instability really need, then you can lose your health insurance, especially because I live in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is one of the only states that doesn't have expanded Medicaid, so we have very restrictive um, income thresholds. So even if you just get like a couple thousand dollars, like that's that's your health care gone. So uh, that was something I dealt with, and it was it was very traumatic for me.
0: Have either of you ever experienced or been a part of a a runaway or homeless youth program that talked about accessing health care or offered assistance in accessing health care?
1: Yeah, I will say for me. um, So I so again, I, you know, I was in that youth shelter, but because I was in the Chicago area and then I went to school in Wisconsin, literally once I left the youth shelter, I had there was nothing for me because I I left the state and so there was no kind of aftercare services or anything. And when I was in the shelter, it was like mostly just very crisis focused on getting, you know, being able to be housed in the shelter. And then I got some of my ID documents, but beyond that, there wasn't much else that I got a lot of help with. And so when I went to Wisconsin um, for school, I was in a in a city that doesn't have any resources for youth who are experiencing homelessness if they're over 18 years, 18 or older. Uh, we, that's why we recently got the YHTP funding, but we, we just don't have any kind of youth programs. And so there really was nowhere for me to go. Um, and that was very, very harmful for me because I, I do remember reaching out to a lot of places when I was a freshman, especially at my university. I would reach out to my university and be like, hey, I, I need help with this. And they'd be like, we can't help you. And so um, that that was really harmful for me. I did later find out, you know, about resources. Like there's like benefits counselors. We have something called the Aging Disability Resource Center. They provide a lot of information on benefits and can help you walk, walk you through that. But being new to the state and also being a, a younger person and a student, like not, no one directed me to those resources. so I didn't find out about them until I just started engaging in disability advocacy on my own. And then sort of just like found out through the work I was doing that these resources existed. Um, but I I largely had to figure out how to navigate all these systems on my own um, until until I was around like twenty twenty one so yeah I kind
2: of just learned how to navigate the welfare system when it comes to insurance by myself when it comes to Medicare which is a whole different aspect when you're granted the disability status you automatically get mm-hmm. Medicare hate it but love it whole different process but i've always just navigated it by myself benefits counseling for my state is offered for free through ovr but it's a more intensive program which now i am accessing because i want to question them
0: Mm, yeah this is also interesting because as i've shared before on the podcast i have a very limited understanding of what it's like to be homeless what it's like to experience homelessness period let alone as a young person Um, I think the average person, when they think about homeless, they usually think about like sleeping arrangements or meals, or maybe they judgmentally assume that a person may need some type of like addiction treatment or counseling. I hardly ever hear people talk about healthcare. What are some of the other gaps in, um, the systems that are put in place to protect you and support you? Or maybe what are some of the more like deeply rooted issues at hand here based on your own experience?
2: One of the things that I feel like they're overlooking is accessibility as well as I want to call it sensitivity training because you know anytime you make a report for discrimination that's what they want to provide when realistically it should just be comprehensive education, racial theory as well as teaching about individuals with disabilities because ableism is a thing, discrimination is a thing, racism is a thing. People need to truly be comprehensive when you're within these fields. So you can walk into a space as a person with a disability and be refused services because you're homeless, because you are disabled and homeless. So it's just like two for one. You can walk into certain spaces in my area being black and be turned away because you're homeless and black. And I wish that was a joke. We are in one of the most diverse areas where Hispanic is the highest population, and yet that still happens, which it shouldn't. But... These flaws exist within systems. So when you're thinking about comprehensive education and training for staff, that needs to be there. When you're saying about food, yes, food is needed, but not no pasta every day of the week. You want to make sure that you're providing food for individuals in needs. We need grants that actually provide shelters and drop-in centers and a stipend for food so that individuals with dietary restrictions can actually access i love the gift card aspect but 25 dollars is going to get you nowhere a hundred dollars can get you farther than that 25 dollars whatever if a person is truly coming in need we have to realize that some of these youth who are struggling and in need might have a child so preparing that diaper or getting those baby clothes telling them about the little registry that target and amazon has to get those freebies and those coupons and those discounts finding the resources outside of your reach and doing cross-collaboration because nobody ever wants to share the pot, it's not at that point sharing the pot, but it's sharing the wealth to make sure that youth is best supported. But when it comes to being disabled, a person who is disabled has a higher chance of losing their child solely because they're disabled, not because they're a bad parent, but simply because they are disabled but realizing that the lack of education to that provider is the reason why that child might be taken away. So making sure that provider is properly educated so that mother or that father does not lose that child is also highly needed because what we're supposed to be doing is offering care and support to these individuals seeking services. We're not supposed to be harming them. We're not supposed to be pushing them away. We're not supposed to be shaming them. We're supposed to be welcoming them into a safe space, but instead we're causing more trauma. I wasn't in any of these shelters. I wasn't in any of these spaces because I was a disabled youth and nobody believed that I was homeless. My school district, I had to get a lawyer involved so that they could stop sending stuff to my mother, which put me in a danger i had to literally fight every step of the way to make sure i was supported shoot i'm going through the name change process right now and got today granted that i don't have to do publication so that i could be properly protected which shows you that there is high amounts of proof and documentation that case files add up if you pull some cys you pull some files from the felonies you pull some of this you pull some of that Like, there's a lot of things that go wrong within our system, but the last thing we need to do is truly reflect negatively to cause harm to these youth. Because I know I got trauma, but I don't want to push my trauma on someone else. That's why comprehensive education, resources, and $25 gift cards aren't going to do anything. Also, if you throw a pizza party, don't do that pizza party. Make sure you're actually listening to what the youth want, because pizza is very freaking traumatic in certain states.
1: Yeah, I think, like EJ said, there, there is a lot of discrimination, and I think discrimination gets overlooked. Um, a lot of times, access needs that young people experiencing homelessness have are seen as privileges. I think there's, like, this assumption that, oh, you know, you're experiencing homelessness, so you should be grateful for anything you get, even if it's, like, expired canned beans or something like that. And, you know, like... And so if you have, you know, additional needs, like you need to eat things that are dairy free or like you need air conditioning like myself because I cannot regulate my body temperature. If you need accessible housing, like a lot of times there's just like this sort of stigma and this belief that oh, you're you're asking for too much, like you're asking for too much. And those are things you really need. That's a privilege, like you don't deserve that. And so. I do think that that also just comes from both ableism and also just discrimination against people who are experiencing homelessness. It's just like this belief that you know anything, anything you need, especially if it's like additional to what a non-disabled person would need, is is too much. And so, I think that's definitely something that gets overlooked is that kind of um, stigma that we face because of that. Um, and then also like EJ was touching on. I do i do think especially if you have mental health diagnoses it's really challenging for you to be believed by a lot of systems because those mental health diagnoses will get used in a way that is very you know stigmatizing i know myself when i made a, a police report about abuse that i experienced they're like oh but you were in a psych ward so you know maybe maybe you just hallucinated that i'm like it wasn't in the psych ward for hallucinations like that's not that's not how it works like disabled people people who are experiencing Um, mental health challenges are more likely to be victims of violence than pretty, you know, than, than people who perpetrate it, and yet there's these very negative assumptions about people with mental health challenges, mental health disabilities, and these like beliefs that, you know, you're a liar, that you're dangerous, that you're not telling the truth, and all of that is ableism. Um, but I think it really, it really hurts young people who have these diagnoses because a lot of systems we will see those young people as not making truthful reports about abuse or harm that they're facing. Um, And then that then has consequences that can lead youth to have to take matters into their own hands and have to run away um, or just not seek out support from systems because of the harm that they face within those systems.
0: Hmm. What are the things that program leaders or even like legislators should be focused on right now? to make um, like the things that, that we've discussed today easier for young people who are experiencing homelessness?
1: Oh, I'm gonna say something which is, first of all, expanded Medicaid in every state, like that is something that is just like, why is it not there yet? I mean, obviously I know why, cause politics, but it is something that I think would have radically improved my life, um, would radically improve people's lives even if they're not experiencing homelessness. Um, so I think expanded Medicaid is one of them. The thing I've also been advocating for in a lot of different spaces. Um, I'm in a lot of different youth homelessness advocacy spaces is that foster youth are able to be on Medicaid up to age 26 regardless of income and I think that is something that should exist for homeless youth. So that's something I've um, been pushing for because I think that is something that is so important because um, we're in a similar situation where we lack family support, um, where loss of health insurance could immediately put us into homelessness again. So that's one thing that I really um, advocated for, um, especially if if you're a young person that has a disability. I think that's so important. Um, And then there are a lot of other things that I, you know, I'm thinking about, but, you know, just like I think people experiencing homelessness should just be given money, like not even direct cash transfers, because there's like another layer of politics and um, lots of red tape to even get that but just like you know someone on the street just like handing out money just being like here take this like go find out I don't know I just feel like a lot of times there's so much so many barriers to being able to even get the things you need because systems are the ones that are given the money and then the systems don't always do things that are helpful and then they make more barriers to getting help and so it's just hard to even get direct access to help because it's not the money isn't going to the people who need it
2: allowing youth to be a part of the process when creating the policies as well as expanded medicaid in all states creating an easier process for the disability diagnosis process as well as there were once assistance for foster care youth to receive cash assistance as well as SNAP benefits that should be reinstated within all states but include homeless youth as well as the foster care act that supports individuals in college should also be expanded for those who are within the homeless realm. So it can be across the spectrum. Foster care youth and homeless youth are in a tricky predicament, and they need as much support as they can. So both should be granted the same, as well as health care. All those little benefits, that cash assistance, that SNAP can go really far, especially when you're struggling and trying to figure it out. And if you're working, that should not then impact what you're doing because it shows that you're trying to Yeah, I
0: totally agree. Um, last question for, from me is if there is a young person who called you guys to ask about advice on accessing healthcare and they are under the age of 21, well, let's say even under the age of 18, what advice would you have for them?
2: Depending on the circumstance, if they're still under their parents' insurance or if they ran away, so I'm going to assume they're in a shelter, I would tell them to call their local Medicaid office and speak to a welfare representative that's going to be their first step before they fill out the application to see how and what steps and processes they'll need as well as go to a safe space environment because you'll need a sign off acknowledging that you're a homeless youth or within the foster care realm and if they're not in the foster care realm and they're granted that emancipation or water state or there are so many different definitions like misplaced youth they'll be able to get a letter from the shelter or drop-in center stating that they are within that categorization so that they're able to apply for benefits. But they wanna always call into the welfare office first. I'm gonna call it the welfare office. But that way you can call into your county assistance office, speak to them, get your letter, and then submit your application but making sure that you're doing it under that specific code. Depending on what state you're in, it's going to be different. I'm going off of Pennsylvania rules, and emancipation out here is a lot trickier than it is in certain states, but you can still do the same process out here. Right now, we got it for the age of 16 and 17 but an individual is able to do it without parents' consent if they're granted that permission by the courts. So it just truly depends on their circumstance, but if they're trying to do it, Sneakly, sneakily, their best thing to do is find their best supports and get into the proof and documentation and know that it's okay to speak up. They should not have to worry about what might happen by their parents. And if they are feared, find a safe place to go and share their story to someone they trust and make sure that they have those supports. Because yes, cops might not always listen. But if you have other adults supporting and backing you up, that is what is going to hold your story. That is what is going to upbring your voice, and that should not be the case when you're underage. But sadly, that is how it works out sometimes.
1: Yeah, I would say for me, it's that question is so tricky because I I know when I was under eighteen, I couldn't get access to healthcare without parental consent, and my healthcare was completely dictated by my parents, which was a problem. And so, and that's just unfortunate because those are policy things that that young people can't access healthcare on their own so honestly i think if they're if they've run away and they're on their own i think the best thing to do is to try to get access to legal representation to some kind of lawyer because because like i said these are these are policy issues and so there's a lawyer who can help them with things like maybe emancipation um you know just trying to find ways to make this work because i do think ultimately it is, it is a legal issue. Um, and I don't, I know I've had lawyers help me out in my life and they're just very, they can be very, very helpful and help you see ways through a situation that you didn't know, you know, that ways through a situation that you didn't know existed before. And so, so I do, I do, I would like definitely recommend lawyers. I know if you're in like a bigger city, it's a lot easier to get like access to lawyers who help, you know, specifically youth are experiencing homelessness. It can be more of a challenge if you're in like a rural-ish community or state like Wisconsin. But um, I would, I would, that's, that's the thing I would advocate for is trying to get access to legal representation.
0: Uh, lovely. Thank you for sharing that. And last question, the actual last question, even though I said the last question was the last question. For all of the program leaders and people who are listening today that just want to help or want to be a part of the greater change what do you have to say to them
2: you know what youth need adults don't know what youth need so if you're an adult and you're trying to advocate for a youth matter without lived experience you know nothing if you're adult advocating with lived experience you've aged out of the realm and you need to stay within your realm and just support the youth within the actual realm support the youth, but don't speak over the youth. But youth know what youth need.
1: Yeah, I think I would just echo what EJ says. Really, just trust young people. Trust is a big thing, Um, and trust that you know we know what we need for ourselves because we do.
0: I just can't thank you both enough for, again, joining in on this conversation, sharing your experience and sharing your expertise, which is so needed. And I totally agree with you. Youth know what youth need. So we will continue to champion the youth voice here at NRS and hopefully we'll have you guys back on the podcast very, very soon. For everyone that's listening, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I look forward to having more conversations with members of the National Runaway Safeline Youth Advisory Board and sharing those with you all. So be on the lookout over the next coming months for more episodes from youth with lived experiences. You can catch up on the Let's Talk podcast now at 1-800-Runaway.org slash podcast or anywhere you stream podcasts.
2: Hey. I'm Ajax, a member of the National Runaway Safeline Youth Advisory Board. You can support us by following our social media accounts. Follow us on Instagram, threads, Facebook, and X, formerly Twitter, at 1-800-RUNAWAY. We're also on TikTok, YouTube Shorts, and LinkedIn at National Runaway Safeline. Transcripts for the Let's Talk podcast are available at 1-800-RUNAWAY.org transcripts.